Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Hey there, everybody. How we doing? Thanks for coming, everyone. The first live stream was lots of fun, and this one is going to be packed. I had a lot of questions sent in. And I'm sure you guys will have a fair amount of questions in the chat. So I'm going to start off by just asking the chat to go ahead and throw some questions at me because I have a bunch of stuff prepared. But usually when I start answering my prepared stuff, then uh, people start piping up with their questions. So since you guys are here and in the flesh, I will go ahead and put the request out. If anybody has a question they would like answered right at the beginning, throw it at me. Hey, guys. All right, well, while those are coming in, I'll start with the first question, which comes from Mark Usher via Twitter, the elusive goose, which I like because I have a parrot named Goose. He asks, were there any myths in particular you enjoyed reading about or found particularly interesting when doing research for your essays and podcasts? Well, I'd probably like, I mean, that's such a broad question. Everything that I've learned has been really interesting, um, I think learning about the Wiccan horned god and the threefold goddess has been really interesting because I had absolutely no idea about that until I read about it. Um, the whole Winter King, Holly King, Summer King, O King stuff, I had only heard of it uh, very vaguely, and so getting filled in on that's pretty awesome. The Comet Dragon stuff I was already familiar with, so um, I, think, I think the Green Man uh, mythology has been the most interesting thing that I've learned through doing this. All right, we got a question from J.S.H. Blackfire, who, by the way, has a bunch of questions in the pre-prepared list. He says, are you sure you stabbed another and not some child's snow knight? That's a quote from A Storm of Swords. And he's asking, is this also George's way of showing the symbolism ties between the Kingsguard and the others? Uh, so, well, there's not an... A direct allusion to the Kingsguard here, but the idea of a snow knight is obviously reminiscent of the others, and I pointed out this line before as a potential foreshadowing of the children being the ones to make the others, if it turns out that the book canon is the same as the show canon on that. Hey, Akira. Hi, Matthew Stoyles. Hey, Chris Veldman. Uh, Chris Veldman asks, anything interesting from Book of Swords that you noticed? Uh, yeah, there was a couple interesting things. Um, actually, a couple things I'm going to mention uh, in episode three, which will, uh, Moons of Ice and Fire 3, which will be called Visenya Draconis. And that one's going to be about Rhaegar, Visenya, and Rhaenys as a model for the sun and the two moon systems. And there's a couple of tidbits about Visenya in Sons of the Dragon that I'm going to incorporate in there. And um, just setting aside the mythical astronomy of it, we are I'm actually going to be doing a live stream with History of Westeros this Tuesday, Tuesday evening, I believe it's 7 Eastern, and we're going to have Brendan Beefish on as well, and we're going to have a big old roundtable about the Book of Swords. So I'll be giving a lot more of my takes on Tuesday. So make sure you tune in to the History of Westeros YouTube channel for that one. Uh, Chicken Lipstick asks, Do you think there's any connection between the Oily Black Stone and the places built with it magnifying magic abilities? So... Yes, in general, I think the Oily Black Stone definitely has magical properties. We're, we're given, we're pretty much told that directly with Yin and Ashai. There's something about the stone that's, that's magical, like the jungle uh, around Yin, for example, 
won't grow close to the city at all. So I think we can conclude that the stone is toxic in some way that is almost certainly magical. And Ashai has some sort of magical pall hanging over it, and I would say that's magical as well. So I'm going to talk more about the greasy stone and the meteorite. I do think there's a connection between the black meteors and the oily black stone. However, there's kind of too much oily black stone for it all to be meteorites. So I think that it's something more like a meteor landed in the heart of uh, the shadow in a shy and then like poisoned all the land, very similar to a Lovecraftian meteor. And that is what has turned all the stone oily in that area. So I suspect that Yin might have been made out of black stone that was quarried at a shy and then taken to Yin. And I also have to wonder about the uh, sea stone chair, perhaps coming from a shy. But it's possible that... Um, you know, everywhere these meteors landed, they caused the oily black stone. So uh, perhaps one landed in, uh, you know, near Insithorio somewhere, and that's what Yin is made from. And perhaps uh, the sea stone chair and maybe even Mokalin, if that's made of oily stone. It's kind of ambiguous in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, that perhaps there's a meteorite somewhere that, that is the source for all of that stone. All right, we got... Um, Akira says, Rhaegar slept in the woods and woke up with songs on his, uh, songs in his head. Do you think music and songs will play a symbolic part later on? Um, I do, well, sort of, I think that music is one of the many metaphors that Martin uses to conceptualize everything, you know, in the way that battles can also be a song. Um, so I, I think it's just one of those uh, metaphors that everything is sort of translated into, like, Sex and swordplay and um, a musical song are pretty much interchangeable because it, it has to do with basically two people interacting in some way. Because even when two people are fighting, they're still sort of dancing together. Um, you know, and there's many scenes where we see a fight uh, that, that is described in lover's language uh, to that extent. So I think the songs kind of just plays into that. But at the same time, I think there's also something really important about songs in terms of... Um, the green seers and singing the songs of earth. Like there's, I think songs are definitely a method to transmit or use magic or aid magic. If you remember on Dragonstone, Melisandre sings in the tongue of a shy when she's burning the seven. So definitely music is important. All right. Let's take our next question. This comes from Keith Johnson, one of my top Patreon supporters whose Patreon nickname is Sir Cletus Ironwood, reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, wrestler of bulls and guardian of the stallion and the horned lord. He asks, do you think the wildlings ended up on the north side of the wall when it was built as a punishment for either directly or indirectly aiding, supporting the others, just as Craster did by giving up his male newborns? It, it just doesn't look like George would chalk something like that up to sheer bad luck or coincidence. It seems to me that Craster made a deal with the devil, so to speak, for the sake of his own immediate survival. When you consider the little we know of the long night when the others advanced south, it's made to sound as if they were an unstoppable force that consumed or vanquished any and all foes that they encountered. Based on what we've seen of people and animals being reanimated, basically anything warm-blooded and breathing would be considered a foe to them. I agree with this. And then he continues to ask, uh, It just doesn't seem possible for humans to survive in the far north, actively resisting the others, while the others themselves were on their campaign of death and conquest to the south. That's what led me to think they were allowed to survive. 
of that time by way of offering human sacrifices in the same way as Craster did. The main reason the wall was ostensibly put up was to keep out the others from the realm of the living, but yet bands of living men were either cast out or denied any claim to living south of the wall. Sorry for being so long-winded, but I've wondered about this for quite a long time since I first read through the series. This is a great question, actually. Um, it's one of those ones that's, you know, like he was saying, it kind of strikes you right at the beginning. Like, how did these humans north of the wall get stuck there? So it's possible that um, there weren't actually any people north of the wall at first, and that eventually, you know, people fleeing from the law, perhaps, or just, you know, coming from uh, the north where people are a little more wild, sort of gradually went north of the wall to discover new land or find a place uh, to start their own thing or to, like I said, run from the law. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is just what uh, you're suggesting, that the others, um, you know, will spare you if you sacrifice to them because, you know, they need babies or whatever. So maybe the wildlings do descend from people who mollify the others by giving them sacrifices. That's a pretty good theory. I've never really thought about that, but I like that idea. Okay, so Jennifer Taylor says the ice-fire dichotomy fits really well with the ice-moon-fire-moon theory, but isn't there really three aspects, ice-moon, fire-moon, and sun? How does the sun aspect of that unity fit in overall? That's a great question. So fire and the sun in particular is kind of like the reacting agent, uh, whereas the two moons would be like the receiver. So think about the moons as wombs, and think about the sun as being the sperm donor, if you will. So it's kind of a, and in alchemical reactions, you always need an, an agent that's sort of the uh, causing the reaction. So I think that's the role of the sun. Let's see. Um, David Hunter just got home and needs whiskey and ice cream. Yep. Get your mind right there, David. Take care of head, as they say. Let's see, Ken, Corey Ziegler asks, can a blood of the dragon fire white skin changer like John skin change a dragon? Faramir burning from Mel's fire magic inside the eagle seems to hint typical skin changes would have trouble with dragons. Yeah, and I talked about that on the live stream with Ideas of Ice and Fire a couple days ago. I think if a regular skin changer tried to skin change a dragon whose fire made flesh, there's a good chance that it would be painful, that it would be like trying to skin change a bonfire, I said. Um, so it's, it's very possible that a fire white skin changer or green seer like John, would be able to skin change a dragon in the way that Faramir couldn't, or perhaps a skin changer who's become a fire priest or priestess. Um, you know, I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar, but there's a theory that Melisandre might be the daughter of Bloodraven uh, and share a sea star, in which case she might have a latent green seer or skin changer ability that's actually contributing to her ability to do magic. I like this theory a lot. I'm not like locked in on it, but I do like it a lot. And if that's the case, uh, maybe Melisandre can do something like that. But it's getting into some pretty theoretical areas there. We'll just have to see. I know I've I've got a good friend named Ravenous Reader who contributes my podcast a lot, who really wants Bran to skin change the dragon. So I can't give up on that just yet. Let's see. Akira C. asks, Tolkien admitted that he was writing what he thought of as real-world Atlantis on Lord of the Rings. Specifically, that would be Numenor. Uh, what do you think is Atlantis in A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, the Great Empire of the Dawn, for sure. Um, I, there's, you can see a little bit of the Atlantis myth in the Doom, just in the way the land sort of sunk beneath the waves. But as far as the long-lost civilization from 10,000 years ago that may or may not exist, that may or may not have been advanced, that's the Great Empire of the Dawn, for sure. Monica, you're late. Uh, it's okay. You just got here. 
we're just getting started. Yeah, and Blue Tiger pipes in Numenor. That would be the uh, specifically the Atlantis of Lord of the Rings. Uh, let's see. How do I think Euron will die? He should, like, I don't know, blow the dragon binder and just, like, internally combust or something. It's got to be spectacular. Or, like, horribly gruesome. Maybe he gets eaten by a squid. Eaten by... Actually, I'm going to go with eaten by a dragon. I'll go with that. Um, let's see here. Bags of glass rainbows with a slice of ocean mist from YouTube. What a name. Asks, am I a Pink Floyd fan by chance? Yes. The name Shadow Heart Mother was a play on Adam Heart Mother, and I am a huge, gigantic Pink Floyd fan. So, yeah. Let's see, Thunderclap from YouTube says, I think John's personal sigil will be a red three-headed wolf on black. Is there any symbolism connecting him to Cerberus or Garm, the hellhound? So I would say that, um, yes, potentially. Uh, if you look at the Simeon Star Eyes myth, he went to the wall to see the hellhounds fight. And I think that all the direwolves are kind of symbolic hellhounds. If you recall that dream that Theon has where um, Bran and Rickon's wolves are chasing him, they're like dripping black blood and their eyes are burning and their eyes are pretty much always described as fiery anyway. So I think the direwolves are essentially hellhounds. John is a wolf person and he's fighting at the wall like the hellhounds. And also um, Cerberus in particular guarded the river Styx, which is like sort of the entrance in and out of the underworld. And the wall serves as very much that same kind of thing uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I could definitely see John as the cap, you know, the commander, Lord Commander of the Wall, as a sort of hellhound guardian gatekeeper type. I think, um, I think uh, the Black Gate in particular and Cold Hands ties into those ideas. So then we've got uh, Ben Brown Plum from Twitter and also my Patreon. He says, I'm catching up on the Ashai talk from the other day, and something occurred to me. You all said there could be equivalent to the others that are on the fire side, fire others. Haven't we already seen that in the dark black shadows, because the others are referred to as white shadows? So, um, I obviously did propose the white shadows and black shadows as kind of symbolic opposites. But I do think there is such a thing as a fire other. I've thought this for a long time. Um, for one reason, I think that is... Uh, simply because Melisandre seems to be transforming into someone who is sustained by fire magic. And so just logical extrapolation, if she keeps going, if it's a process and she keeps going, eventually she'll be completely sustained by fire magic. And you could eventually see her turning into somebody that's basically just a living flame. I mean, she's, she's like halfway there. So it's just kind of logical extrapolation. That and the fact that all the red priests try to look like somebody who's on fire. They wear robes of shifting flames. Uh, the high priests even like tattoo their faces with flames. And Makoro's uh, tattoos are described as like almost look like they're moving. So I think there's definitely something going on with that. Uh, let me grab one from the chat from my friend Sanrixian. Uh, she says, what do we know about the God King's wives besides that he had a lot? And we're talking about the... Um, the uh, god emperor of the gemstone empire, or the great empire of the dawn, rather. And he says, uh, the mothers of the gemstone empires, emperors, what kind of people surrounded the great empire? Well, so that's really all extrapolation. We, we don't really know. I will say that um, we're told the amethyst empress was the last ruler of the great empire of the dawn, which indicates that women can be rulers, uh, which makes me think that probably she wasn't the only one. I, I mean, obviously that list of emperors can't be taken too literally, 
it's more likely that those are dynasties or clans that took a gemstone as a sigil or something like that. And I have to imagine if there was one empress that there was more than one. So hard to say really what's going on, but if, if they had one empress, that sort of implies that this was a society that might not have been as patriarchal as like a medieval society. It's certainly cast in that sort of golden age uh, sort of light. So we could extrapolate that, that women do a little better there, but we're just filling in the gaps. We really don't know. So let's see here. How does one plant a weirwood? Well, I've heard some really good theories about that. Uh, my friend Joe Magician from Reddit thinks that you actually plant a weirwood seed inside of a dead person's like body and the tree grows out of them or something like that. There's a couple of hints about that. If you recall, um, when Arya and the Black Brothers bury one of the Night's Watch recruits, they throw in some acorns so a tree will grow over him in the grave. And then there's also uh, when Brienne kills the... Uh, let's see, who does she kill on the fingers? A, uh, like Nimble... Uh, no, Nimble Dick is the... Uh, well, Nimble Dick dies. Okay, so she kills a couple of the bloody members on the fingers. She buries Nimble Dick under the weirwood and she throws in a couple of golden dragons. And a golden coin named a dragon is obviously like a meteor symbol. And so now think about like the meteors as star seeds. And there's a there's an implication of planting a tree there. So that's one thing that I heard. Let's see. Um, John will not be a fire white because he jumped his soul into ghost, Mr. Scotty says. So I think that John's resurrected nature will depend in large part about what uh, magic is used to resurrect him. That's really the thing. Is it going to be Melisandre? Is his body going to animate out of the cold magic, like a cold white, and then they've got to like repossess his body? Or maybe Bran will do the rumored Greenseer resurrection, in which case it might not be an ice or fire thing at all. So I, I think it's an open case. I mean, fire seems to be the most likely if, if Mel resurrects him, but that's, there's other possibilities too. All right, let's see. We've got more questions coming in from the chat. Talking about the Viking berserkers skin changed into wargs and brought the creatures' spirits back with them into battle. Do you think John 2.0 will be as crazy as these werewolves? Yes. Not not crazy, but I do think that um, he's going to go into ghost, and ghost the wolf body is going to have to be sacrificed in order to get John's spirit back into John's body. But I think that by that time, John's spirit will have mingled with ghost. And so what we get back into um, John's body will actually be Ghost and John together. And I talked about that extensively in the Sacred Order of Green Zombies series. So if you want more detail on that theory, there's lots more detail to be had. Uh, there's a question about magic coming from the hinges of the world, Jonathan Kine. I'm going to talk about that in a future episode, so I'm going to hold off on mentioning that for now. Let's see. She kills Shagwell. Yeah, Shagwell's the one she kills. Bastard. What's the closest real-world tree equivalent to the weirwood tree? It's hard to say. It's, I mean, the weirwood, the weirwood tree is really just a mythic tree. It's, it's the cosmic world tree. It's a universal myth, and it's different trees in different cultures. Um, I guess I'd have to say the ash tree, because Yggdrasil was an ash tree, and George is using a lot of the ash tree symbolism in the story. So that's what I'd have to say for that. Uh, let's see. What is the missing ingredient for Valerian steel, Jermaine Murray asks. From the legends, it seems that blood sacrifice is not enough. It has to be a loved one. That's referring to the Azor high myth. Maybe that's why they're so rare. Um, so one theory is that it's dragon bones. 
that are used in Valerian steel. That's a weird one because it makes a ton of sense because dragon bones are high in iron and they're black and they're unbreakable. However, there's an SSM where supposedly Martin knocks that down um, and responded in an email and said, no, that's not the case. But it's not something he said publicly, so it's kind of disputable. So that's still a possibility. Probably a remote possibility, but it's possible. Um, another one I like is that actually you need greasy black stone, a black meteorite, in order to make Valerian steel swords. And that the Valerians were actually harvesting that black stone uh, from perhaps Yin or the Isle of Toads. If you notice, the Valerian slave colony of Gogasos is right next to the Isle of Toads, which has a ton of oily black stone. So it's possible that that is the missing ingredient. That would be my favorite answer, but I don't know if that's the case. I turned the camera around today. I didn't feel like doing my whole setup, so I'm just using my standing desk. Normally you guys are looking at the desk. Today I'm typing at the desk, so... Hey, Variety, what can you say? By the way, anyone out there who does any amount of computer work and hasn't tried a standing desk... Consider me your missionary of standing deskness. It's terrific. Got to try it. Okay, so let me get through a couple more of these questions that I have. Ah, Dairyman from plowmanskeep.wordpress.com. That's another great symbolism uh, analysis WordPress site that everyone should definitely check out. I've got uh, a link to them on my front page, I believe. And if I don't, I will be fixing that after this episode because he's awesome. And I've also talked about uh, Sweet Sunray sometimes. There's a few other people who do this kind of symbolic analysis that I do. And I love them all. They're all my friends. So Dairyman asks, In my own petty attempt at deciphering a song of ice and fire symbology, it's a little bit of false modesty there. Dairyman is... A brainiac, but that's all right. He says, I theorized that ebony persimmon trees could be representative of the transformed weirwood or something. While doing so, I speculated that the antithesis of the green seer could be the shadowbinder, as the shadowbinder's skin may be black, as in not a superficial black of a summer islander, but pitch black. He says it's very tenuous, but it seems George is telling us something about the nature of Melisandre, Quaid, and Makoro. Makoro is a shadowbinder. Uh, at least that's that's what Dairyman is uh, proposing. A powerful sorcerer and worshipper of the firelight, in the same uh, the same as Melisandre and Quave. Because of this, I speculate that Mel and Quave are not only hiding their potentially advanced age from the non-magic beings of Planetos, but they are hiding their pitch black skin, which would totally freak people out and make the story too obvious to the reader. That's a cool theory. Um, if Melisandre really looks like Makoro underneath, uh, that's going to be pretty shocking. So I don't, I don't know. I haven't thought about that too much. Um, but anything's possible because we know that Michelle's, or Michelle, Melisandre is probably using uh, illusion magic to disguise whatever she really looks like. So Keegan says, hey, Lucifer, your channel is one of the most enjoyable and mine intriguing channels regarding the Song of Ice and Fire. Keep up the good work. Greetings from Greece. Cool. What's up, Greece? Uh, one of the, my favorite things is uh, on WordPress, it shows me where people are reading from. And you'd be surprised. Like, Song of Ice and Fire really is global. People are into it from all over the world. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so Blue Tiger is one of my good buddies. If you're on Twitter, you'll know Blue Tiger. I frequently talk to him. He does Polish translations of uh, my mythical astronomy essays, actually. And he is huge into Lord of the Rings. And so we talk a lot of Lord of the Rings stuff on Twitter because there's a lot of Lord of the Rings parallels with Song of Ice and Fire. So he sent me a few related questions, which I'm going to answer kind of all at once. 
So first he asks, do you think that George planned to drop this massive amount of clues in the world of ice and fire and fire and blood uh, from the, and by fire and blood, he's referring to basically the princess and the queen and the rogue prince and the sons of the dragon, little short stories that we've gotten recently. Or um, did George realize that maybe he'd made the symbolism too complex and only few people found it? Basically, was the world of ice and fire a way to guide the readers in the right direction? And is it still possible to figure this whole mythical astronomy thing out without the world of ice and fire? That is a terrific question. So, yes, I do think that George kind of felt like the sim- people weren't getting the symbolism. And so the world of ice and fire has a lot of like pretty flagrant clues uh, to help the mythical astronomy theory along. However, um, and I have to say, like, I came up with this theory in March or like February of 2015. And one of the most surprising things for me was that nobody else had found it before. Like once I figured out, oh, the meteors, dragons coming from the moon must be meteors. I went online and was like, oh, somebody already figured this out, right? Nobody did. Um, And I I don't know why that is. Maybe people just don't read the same strange books that I read about mythology and dragons and stuff. But I do think that George gave the heavy clues to this in the first book. I mean, the myth of the Carthine uh, moon dragons is in the first book, the two moons myth. And all the Azor high stuff is right at the beginning of book two. So I do think that he's giving us these clues right at the beginning. But if I'm the first person to pick up on it in 2015, when he started writing these books in 1997, that's almost 20 years that went by with nobody figuring out anything about long night and moon meteors. So... I do think that The World of Ice and Fire was him going, all right, well, I got to step it up because his editor before has talked about how he leaves the, um, he likes to leave his clues. Uh, he starts off by giving like very vague clues about it. And then the second wave, he'll give you more obvious clues. And then finally, right before an event happens, he'll give you foreshadowing that's more obvious. And probably the best example of this is The Red Wedding. Uh, the Red Wedding, there's foreshadowing of it going all the way back to book one. However, as you get closer to it, the foreshadowing gets heavier and heavier uh, until it finally happens. Uh, so, uh, but I do think it's possible to figure it out from without the world of ice and fire, particularly in the first two books. You've got all the pieces that you need. Um, the main connection for me was just figuring out that dragons coming from the moon must be meteors and then going, okay, well, a meteor impact is a thing that can cause a long night. And then you look at the Azora High story, and there's a moon cracking right in the middle of a story about the long night. And that's really, I went from there. So next set of questions he asks, did George plan this whole thing from the beginning, or did it just grow as George is a gardener? Well, like I said, the two moons myth is in the first book. So I'd have to say he planned it from the beginning. I do think there are certain things um, that he's kind of expanded upon as, as he's gone, perhaps. But... I think that most of it was right there from the beginning. And I'm just going to take a quick check and see how many people are watching. 92 watchers. That is awesome. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. You make me feel so warm and fuzzy. And I like feeling warm because my name is Lucifer. All right, so enough corny jokes. Blue Tiger says, Do you think that by the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, the seasons will be back to normal? If they ever were like ours in the first place, how would the destruction of the second moon help, if at all? And so, yes, I do think the seasons were normal. Um, in the world of ice and fire, the maesters speculate that uh, they definitely 
that they think they used to be. There's evidence for that. Not sure what that evidence would be, but I think it's a pretty clear clue that they used to be. And also George has said that we will get the answer to why are the seasons all messed up before the series is over. Um, so I do think they'll go back to normal. And how would the destruction of the second moon help? So that's a great question. I do plan on getting to the topic of the potential destruction or impact of the second moon or the ice moon, the remaining moon. I'm going to get into that. That's sort of probably towards the end of the Moons of Ice and Fire series. It's sort of the conclusion like, hey, everyone, this is going to happen again. But I don't think the ice moon is going to be destroyed is the basic thing. I, I mean, if, if it is destroyed, then the entire planet would be screwed because without any moons, the, uh, the axis rotation would be wobbly and everyone would die is the short answer. So I think what's going to happen is that the ice moon is going to get hit it's going to give us some more meteors, but it's still going to be up there. It's just going to be beaten up a little more. So, And actually, I'm going to get in... Um, I always debate like how much to leak ahead of the future episodes, but I think that the fire and ice moons are taken from Io and Europa, which are two of the most famous moons in our solar system. And Io is basically a volcanic moon. It's like a floating volcano for all intents and purposes. And Europa is basically an ice moon. It's a, it's a rocky moon surrounded by a global ocean of very cold water and then like a 50-mile layer thick of ice rock around that. So this is getting a little technical, but I suspect the ice moon might lose its ice and water and end up just a rocky moon, and then maybe it won't have any more magic. So maybe we'll get a no-magic ending where the seasons are normal and we just have a rocky, non-magical moon and everything chills the fuck out a little bit. So... Maybe that'll be the answer. And let's go... The, let me see if I've missed any in the chat here. I probably have. Let's see what we got. Akira C. asks, Oracles played a huge part in our world history, such as Alexander the Great. Song of Ice and Fire dreams are clearly parallels to that. How do we explain our history's oracles? Well, either you believe in a little bit of magic and that people can actually get a whiff of the future, um, or it's a lot of, you know, wishful thinking and wanting to believe, and that's a pretty big question. <laughs> Why do people believe in religion in the event that religions aren't based on anything true, any, like, real supernatural activity? Then I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a really big question, probably because I think it's comforting to believe in the idea of God because it's kind of like having a parent, uh, but I don't know. I mean... A lot of people think they're psychic or think that there's something to be some sort of truth to astrology. So maybe that explains it. Let's see, Corey Ziegler says, something about Quentin. Stealing the dragon, a tiger-masked brazen beast was taken in Viserion's jaws, flame gouted from the tiger's mouth. Does this imply dragon people took the children of the forest magic by force? Ooh, that's a good catch. I'm going to have to look at that one. That sounds pretty good. Um, there is a lot of stuff about tigers. There's a whole line of tiger symbolism. I think it has to do with Tiger Woman from the the Bloodstone Emperor and also the Isle of Lang. Um, but it could just also be a reference to cat people, i.e. the children of the forest. Uh, so yeah, the dragon eating the tiger and then the flame coming out of the tiger's mouth. That's pretty awesome. I'm definitely going to take a look at that scene. That whole pit, uh, that scene in the pit, is loaded with a lot of good symbolism, and I've got a lot of that planned for the Weirwood Compendium when I go back to that one. 
Uh, Night Radiant says, meteors crashing into the planet could cause the wacky seasons, maybe. Yeah, I definitely think that the wacky seasons go back to the moon disaster, for sure. And basically, if you think about an ice and fire moon, it's pretty easy to think about uh, perhaps the summer and winter seasons are tied to these moons. And so if the fire moon goes kaput, then maybe that's why we got a really long winter. It's, It's pretty easy to see that there's some sort of connection. I hate to get too technical with it, but if you've got moons of ice and fire, they might be governing ice and fire magic and the balance of the seasons. And when they're both existent, they, you know, they're in balance. But if one of them is blown up, then uh, they're out of balance. I compared it to like an arm wrestling match where one person's arm just gives out all of a sudden. You know, if ice and fire are sort of keeping each other in balance and one of them is broken or shadowed or corrupted or whatever then you're going to have a preponderance of influence of the icy powers that be. Does anyone know if we ever see an other during the day? No, we do not. Um, And I do think the others are like vampires. They will not come out during the day. And I think that in order for them to invade Westeros, the sun will have to be hidden. HBO kind of glossed over that. I'm sort of hoping HBO goes back to hide the sun next episode, but I'm could just be the others walk around and there's a storm that follows them and it gets dark enough for them. But in the books, I don't think you'll see them during the day. Uh, let's see here. Jennifer Taylor from Patreon. The astronomy on Planeta seems to be the same as ours. Any chance of this is really Earth in the future twist? No, I don't think so. I think Martin has talked about this. It's similar to Tolkien in that it's like an alternate reality Earth. It's basically Earth, but just in a different reality, you know, a parallel universe, if you will. It's not necessarily meant to be in the future of our timeline or in the past, but we're supposed to think about it as Earth. Like, for example, the constellations appear to be the same. The Sword of the Morning is Orion. Ice Dragon seems to be Draco, uh, and so on and so forth. So... My buddy Monica Lamos asks what I think of Egg's mother, Diana Dane. Well, I think Diana Dane makes Danny and John part Dane. And that could be important if John is ever going to wield the sword of the morning. Um, it's a small percentage of Dane, but maybe that'll matter. Who knows? I also wonder if, um, if the Great Empire of the Dawn is uh, the ancestors of the Danes. Perhaps that Dane original Great Empire of the Dawn blood being mixed back into the Targaryen line played a factor in Danny's hatching of the dragons. Although I like to think it's the Blackwood blood giving some green seer mojo back to the dragon dragon line that, that did the trick, but hard to say. Um, it's I find it to be very interesting that the other two uh, families that contributed to John and uh, Danny's Targaryen side, other than Targaryen, are Blackwood and Dane. And those are like two of the most magical and mysterious houses in the books. So it's hard for me to think that's a coincidence and it means nothing. All right, I'm going to grab a couple um, more from the the list here. Okay, Unchained, who's a great uh, theorist and essay writer from Westeros.org and a good friend of mine, tweeted at me and said, favorite quote about an icy moon maiden birthing others, it contrasts them with the black bastard variety of shadow by calling them true born. And I've got this quote up on a separate page, which I will now read. This is from A Storm of Swords, Catelyn. Could there be another woman in her father's life? 
Some village maiden he had wronged when he was young, perhaps? Could he have found comfort in some serving wench's arms after mother died? It was a queer thought, unsettling. Suddenly she felt as though she had not known her father at all. Who is Tansy, my lord? Do you want me to send for her father? Where would I find the woman? Does she still live? Lord Hoster groaned. Dead. His hand groped for hers. You will have others. Sweet babes and true-born. Others, Catelyn thought? Has he forgotten that Ned is gone? Is he still talking to Tansy, or is it me now? Or Lysa? Or mother? So this is the great Tansy mystery. And of course, the answer to this is that Tansy T is an abortifacient. And Lord Hoster gave Lysa Tansy T when she got pregnant with Peter Baelish's child. Um, because Peter Baelish was not highborn and they weren't married, so it was a disgrace. So basically, it seems like Hoster tricked Lysa into aborting her own child, something which obviously traumatized Lysa very heavily. And Hoster, of course, feels guilty about this. And so when he's saying, you'll have others, sweet babes and trueborn, that's something that he said to Lysa. He's reliving that moment. And we get more evidence of this in another Catelyn quote. And it says, That night Catelyn slept fitfully, haunted by formless dreams of her children, the lost and the dead. Well before the break of day, she woke with her father's words echoing in her ears. Sweet babes and trueborn. Why would he say that, unless... Could he have fathered a bastard on this woman, Tansy? She could not believe it. And here, Catelyn is still thinking that Tansy is a woman, which obviously she isn't. Uh, her brother, Edmure, yes, it would not have surprised her to learn that Edmure had a dozen natural children, but not her father, not Lord Hoster Tully, never. Could Tansy be some pet name he called Lysa, the way he called me Cat? Lord Hoster had mistaken her for her sister before. You'll have others, he said, sweet babes and trueborn. Lysa had miscarried five times, twice in the Erie and thrice at King's Landing, but never at River Run, where Lord Hoster would have been on hand to comfort her. Never unless... unless she was with child that first time. She and her sister had been married on the same day and left in their father's care when their new husbands had ridden off to rejoin Robert's Rebellion. Afterward, when their moonblood did not come at the accustomed time, Lysa gushed happily of the sons they were certain they carried. Your son will be heir to Winterfell and mine to the Erie. Oh, they'll be the best of friends, like your Ned and Lord Robert. They'll be more brothers than cousins, truly, I just know it. She was so happy. So the operative line here is, you'll have others, meaning your children will be others. This is said to Lysa, and Lysa lives in the Eyrie. The Eyrie is a giant symbol of the ice moon. So Lysa who dresses in blue and moonstones and blue and white, has, because, you know, the House Arryn symbolism is cream and sky blue. It's got the moon and falcon. So Lysa is a terrific Night's Queen, Ice Moon Maiden figure. And Catelyn, as I discussed in Venus of the Woods, is a perfect Fire Moon character, particularly when she becomes Lady Stoneheart. So what we've got here is two sisters showing us an ice moon and fire moon relationship. And the ice moon, Lysa, is going to have children. She'll have others, other children. So that just it's just another example of the ice moon queens having other children, children who become others. And uh, that would make Catelyn's kids potentially parallel to the Night's Watch, Black Shadows, Dragons, and if you notice, all the direwolves have eyes of fire. 
Rob's uh, Rob when he does the King of Winter symbolism, kind of ties into the Azor High stuff, and of course John is uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Even though she's not Cat's child, she's in that family unit, if you will. So there you go. There's that one. Good question. All right. How's everyone doing in the chat, guys? We having fun? Yeah, Blue Tiger. Eerie's built from pale white marble with blue veins. The ice symbolism of the Eerie is overwhelming. I'm probably going to do an entire episode on the Eerie and Sansa because there's so much ice moon symbolism going on there. It's uh, just not even fun. It's, it's not even funny. It's ridiculous. Uh, hey, what's up, Searing Abyss? Thanks for signing up for Patreon, man. Really appreciate that. Let's see. Lucifer means Lightbringer. And Catelyn notices the blood blue in the blue veins in Lord Hoster's hand. Oh, that's right. She calls them blue rivers. And that echoes the marble of the Eerie. Totally. So the Tully symbolism is interesting because it combines blue and red. And all the Tullys have blue eyes, which remind you of the others, but red hair, which, you know, kissed by fire hair. So it seems like there's some symbolism of the Tullys being some sort of ice and fire mixing or conjoining. And uh, I will get around to trying to unravel that eventually. Let's see. Akira C., what do you think Heron the Black's intent was with Hall? It was seemingly built for giants with the objectives, uh, with objectives on the god's eye. And it looks like Aegon came to Westeros right in time to stop him. Yeah, so Hall. it definitely is implied that Hall is a magically significant event. They cut down weirwoods to make Hall, And so some people have theorized that because the Valerians never came to Westeros from the time of the Long Night all the way up until the Targaryens invaded from Dragonstone, is that the Children of the Forest were basically protecting Westeros from the Dragonlords. There's some sort of pact or some magical barrier, something like that. And that when Heron built Hall, it was like the final insult, the final straw. They cut down all the weirwoods around the god's eye, so maybe that removed that protection, and then you get the dragons invading right away. Or it could just be, um, could be something a little more symbolic. Uh, I do know that Hall is a fire moon location. It's made of black stone. It gets burnt by dragons, so obviously it's a fire moon place. And the spirits, the ghosts of Hall, are supposedly burnt up fiery spirits. So that actually ties in, I don't know, Akira, if you've listened to the uh, Weirwood Compendium, but I talk a lot about burning trees and how the Weirwood is symbolically a burning tree and how that has a lot to do with the Zora High and the meteors and stuff. So the idea of cutting down the Weirwoods to make Hall ties into all of that, I would say. Let's see. Question about mermaids. Mermaids and all of the squishers and all of the watery beings... Um, there is a whole line of symbolism. All of the watery beings are telling us stuff about green seers. And it's a really big puzzle that my friend Ravenous Reader cracked. And I don't really want to let it out until we're ready to take care of that. But we're going to do a whole compendium on water creatures and water magic. But we won't actually be talking about water creatures. We'll be talking about green seers again. So there's a really big symbolic thing going on there. But we will talk about mermaids. Oh, yes. And I've mentioned before that that the moon is a goddess and a moon meteor falls into the sea, that that is like a drowned god or drowned goddess. 
And um, that there's a lot of the mermaid mythology is tied into that. For example, Durin Durandin uh, claims a daughter of the wind and sea gods, which would make her an aquatic mermaid type goddess. Um, and then, of course, the Grey King takes a mermaid to wife too. San Rixian. What other locations have symbolic astronomical meaning like Heron Hall relating to the greasy black stone? So we're going to do a whole episode based on locations. I've mentioned a few of the most famous ones. Like for the Fire Moon, we have Dragonstone. Um, we have Valyria, Ashai, the Dragon Pit in King's Landing, which we're going to talk a lot about next episode, Heron Hall, uh, a couple others. And then for the Ice Moon, there's like White Harbor, the Eerie, the Sept of Baylor, Temple of the Moon Singers, the Wall, um, the Heart of Winter, White Sword Tower, a couple others like that. But we will do a full rundown on that one. Let's see here. All right, I'm going to... Thunderclap asks, could any of the missing dragons reappear? Silverwing, Cannibal, or Sheepstealer? Maybe, probably not. Probably not. I think that would be far-fetched. But at the same time, I also think that Martin can basically pull off anything he wants. He, I mean, if you look at, if you take a Song of Ice and Fire and just sort of summarize, like, Danny or John's arc, they sound like such a stereotypical fantasy hero. But when you read the story, it doesn't read like that because he pulls all of these tropes down into the mud and the grit and makes you ask the question of what would this really be like to ride a dragon? Like, oh, it's terrifying and lots of people die. So if he decides to do anything fantastic, like another moon meteor impact or something really dramatic um, like that, or the Stark, the Stark dead rising from the crypts, for example, which seems really freaky. But like, if he does something like that, he'll have a way of pulling it off so that it's realistic. Uh, Chicken Lipstick is talking about the Far Winds. Yes, it's a pretty big hint that skin changers can interact with sea animals. <laughs> Thunderclap. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, small chance. You got a little better chance than Jim carried, uh, but uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, so yeah, the kings of winter rising from their tombs would be so epic, says Searing Abyss. I'm actually working on a fun Halloween uh, thing. It could be an essay or an essay in a video cast with Joe Magician from Reddit, and it's going to be all about some of the horrible things that could happen in the crypts. So stay on the lookout for that. We'll be talking about the crypts. Have I thought about the symbolism of Quicksilver? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. I should, because Mercury is an important planet in mythology. It's linked to Hermes, uh, Trismystegus, and a bunch of other alchemical stuff. So I should probably look into that one. I know uh, Quicksilver the Dragon was just torn to bits by Balerion and the Sons of the Dragon. It wasn't even a fair dragon fight. That was pretty sad, honestly. That one made me sad. Okay, so JHS Blackfire from YouTube says, thanks again for another awesome vid, man. Are you, let's see, and you were right, I never saw the symbolism that united the Kingsguard and the others, and I'm all on board with the Two Moons, Ice and Fire I theory. It makes you really appreciate that this was a hell of an event, so magnificent that it echoed throughout reality. That's a really, or throughout eternity. That's a really good way of putting it. I would say this was an event that echoes throughout history. And just like uh, we have all the flood myths on Earth, which scientists are now pretty confident stem from the meltdown of the ice caps during the last ice age, around 10,000 BC or so, right around the same time as the Atlantis myth was supposedly occurred, by the way. 
So these, you know, the, the melting down of the, of the ice caps during the collapse of the ice age around 10,000 BC, and it's actually like several thousand years before and after, 13,000 BC to 7,000 BC. There was like three periods of dramatic flooding and uh, ice sheet collapse. But the point is, this, that was a series of events so dramatic that it did echo through history. And here we are 8,000, 10,000 years later telling these flood myths. Um, so I definitely think that the moon disaster is that kind of event, of course. Thunderclap. Send in a bunch of good questions. Thanks. Appreciate it. Very thought-provoking. I gave the one moon, two moons debate some thought. Could Winterfell be a comparison for the moon? It was burnt and damaged. Its walls cracked. Said to be a shell of a building, with the legend of dragons underneath it, and Bran potentially seeing a dragon through Summer's eyes. Could there be a connection with Harrenhal? So I definitely okay. So Winterfell is a really important and interesting symbol, and at first you think it has to be an ice moon because it's in the north and it's the home of the Starks. However, the first thing we're told about Winterfell is that it has warm water coursing through its walls like blood coursing through blood veins. It's referred to a lot in the first book. So I think we have to conclude that Winterfell is probably a fire moon symbol. And I think that the Stark uh, sigil shows you the, the gray wolf on a white field. So specifically, I think Winterfell represents the fire moon meteor that I am proposing lodged in the ice of the ice moon. So think about Winterfell as like a hot meteor that's surrounded by ice. And so it's got this internal heat, but basically it's surrounded by cold. And so that, that I think, is what Winterfell is. And we will be talking about that more in the future quite a bit. Let's see. Uh, Devi asks, so the swords were there to stop the dead Starks becoming whites when the next long night came? That is one possibility. It's really confusing about the swords because... Ned and a couple others think that the swords are there to keep the vengeful King of Winter spirits in their tombs. However, um, we are seeing several times, or twice at least, Rob sitting as the King of Winter with a sword across his lap, and both times it's a, an expression of hostility and a denial of guest right. So I'm not sure if those swords are saying stay out of the crypts or if they're keeping the Kings of Winter in or both. Or, you know, there's a few different possibilities. But again, we're going to talk about all of those uh, in the Crips episode that I'm going to do with Joe Magician. So stay on the lookout for that. And, uh, yeah, so Jonathan Kine is adding that Winterfell was constructed, he thinks Winterfell was constructed over an underground volcano that supplies the area with hot springs and is a source of fire magic. So obviously the hot springs indicate geothermal activity of some kind. And that's kind of getting to the, I probably should have said that, but basically the hot springs, it's the next best thing to a volcano. Um, so yeah, that might well be a source of fire magic and who knows what we'll find down there in the crypts. I definitely think there's a dragon, something under there. And that was the other part of Thunderclap's question is like, there's a bunch of dragon symbolism, particularly Bran seeing the uh, flames that look like a flying serpent. And also there's several lines when it's called a shell. Um, which makes you think of an eggshell. So yeah, I, all of that stuff. And the whole idea of like, John is the dragon under Winterfell. You know, John's the one who's tied to the crypts. He's the one that's got some truth uh, to find in the crypts. And so the idea of a dragon being in Winterfell is kind of right there from the beginning. 
Uh, yes. Uh, Zachary Grinikoff asks, Jamie's chapter from A Storm of Swords when he falls asleep on the weirwood stump and sees his white brothers and Rhaegar. After Rhaegar speaks, he's described as white, then red, then dark. Any thoughts on the colors? Yeah, I think that's Fire Moon transformation. Before it was hit, it was probably a bright moon in the sky. And by the way, even if a moon is made of black stone, it's going to look white in the sky because it's just basically reflecting light. It might reflect it more dimly than a moon made out of gray or white stone, but basically um, all moons are going to appear white or bright in the sky. So the whole white to red to black is essentially the, the story of the fire moon. It got caught on fire and then it turned into black stone. And Rhaegar is a symbol of those black meteors and Azor High Reborn. So that all lines up, I think. So um, Debbie mentions the crypts are always described as so cold. Actually not. Once uh, we get to a dance with dragons and it is actually winter outside, Theon notes that the crypts are warmer than the outside. The crypts basically stay at a constant temperature. And I, I don't think that's anything special. Underground stays at a specific temperature. It's kind of like right around 37, 40 degrees. I think it's just above freezing. So anything underground, like if, you, if you've ever been to spelunking before, if you've ever been in the cave system, it's cool. It's always cool downstairs, but it's, I don't think it's supernaturally cold. What I wonder is if you go deep enough, will you feel a hot gust of air coming up from beneath? That is what I wonder about. Uh, yes, Jonathan Kine also points out that gargoyles are on Winterfell. The only places we find gargoyles are Winterfell and Dragonstone, and actually Coldmoat uh, from the Duncan Egg story has gargoyles too. So that could be a clue about Dragonlord's um, building. Specifically, the gargoyles are only on the first keep, which is the oldest part of Winterfell, the part supposedly built by Bran the Builder, who may have learned some of that building technology from the Great Empire of the Dawn, potentially. Do you think Tiger Woman relates to the Yang part of yin and yang, the dragon and the tiger? Uh, oh, you're catching me a little bit ignorant there, Akira. I'm not familiar with the dragon and the tiger associations of yin and yang. I will have to go do that research because that sounds like it might be right. I do think a lot about the black-white sort of dualism of yin and yang, and I'm going to talk about that more in a couple of Moons of Ice and Fire episodes but if you're telling me that yang is related to the tiger and yin to the dragon, that makes a damn lot of sense. Yin is the black half. And of course, um, yin tar is one of the names for Azor High. And if you think about tar is black and yin is black, so yin tar means black black <laughs> or black tar. So that's another clue that Azor High is a bad guy. Interesting that tigers are associated with the white half. Uh, that might also tie into the white lion uh, pelt that Danny wears. So that's pretty good. I'm going to get back to that idea when I do a little more research. So thanks for that catch. Arthur Fonseca says, Hi, LML. Do you see Arya as a personified goddess of death? Yes. I guess you didn't read the uh, Weirwood Goddess series yet, but it talked all about that. Being someone who is a warg and a skin changer, she's a powerful killer because she can kill as a single person and a pack with Nymeria. Yes, Arya has all kinds of death goddess symbolism around her. And uh, yeah, I would just say check out Weirwood Goddess series. I pounded it into the ground with that one. All right. Um, next question from that got sent in ahead of time. Melanie Patrick, she sent me a bunch of good questions. And she's also one of my big patron supporters. 
And I'm sorry for putting the K in Patrick, Melanie. I know it doesn't have a K. I uh, just couldn't help myself, it looks like. Her uh, cool Patreon name is the child of the forest known as Feathercrow, the weirdcat dryad, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. She says, wonderful content as always. Have you done any looking into how the Northlands and Dorne are fire and ice reflections? Sunspear and Winterfell, fire and ice equivalents. So that is referring to a quote from The World of Ice and Fire. Archmaester Brood, who was born and raised in the Shadow City, that's the city next to Sunspear, that huddles beneath the crumbling walls of Sunspear, once famously observed that Dorne has more in common with the distant north than either does with the realms that lie between them. One is hot and one is cold, yet these ancient kingdoms of sand and snow are set apart from the rest of Westeros by history, culture, and tradition. Both are thinly peopled compared to the lands betwixt. Both cling, both cling stubbornly to their own laws and their own traditions. Neither was ever truly conquered by the dragons. The kings in the north accepted Aegon Targaryen as his overlord peaceably, while Dorne resisted the might of the Targaryens valiantly for almost 200 years before finally submitting to the Iron Throne through marriage. Dornishmen and Northmen alike are derided as savages by the ignorant of the five civilized kingdoms and celebrated for their valor by those who have crossed swords with them. Well, the obvious, um, the obvious thing that lines up with that, Melanie, would be uh, Rhaegar taking Elia of Dorne and Lyanna Stark of Winterfell as his two brides. Um, I'm going to talk, I've already mentioned that in passing. Episode four, which is going to be called RLJ, A Recipe for Ice Dragons, we'll be talking all about Lyanna and uh, Elia. And so, obviously, Elia would be the Fire Moon Bride coming from Dorne, Lyanna the Ice Moon Bride coming from the north, and particularly Lyanna is associated with the Blue Winter Rose. So that's kind of like, you know, pretty obvious that she's the Ice Moon Bride there. So in that sense, yes. Um, I don't think the ultimate uh, epitome of fire is Sunspear. Like, I think Valeria and Ashai are the more important places. In particular, Ashai... Uh, and the wall and the heart of winter are set up as opposites. And I think that is, that's really the more important pairing. However, um, you know, George tries to create, he creates these fire and ice metaphors like anywhere he is. So he needs multiple fire things. Like when he's in Harrenhal, he can create fire and moon metaphors with the Blackstone of Harrenhal. When he's in King's Landing, he can use the Hill of Rainies and the Dragon Pit. Um, and so Dorne functions as one of those places. And, uh, hey, Vanessa, you're showing up late. That's okay. This will not disappear into the ether. You can watch it back after we are done. And if you have a question, just type it in. Oh, look. Actually, Vanessa, your question is up next. Good timing. You're not late. You are right on time. And so Vanessa asks, Mars has two moons, so it's not far-fetched to believe that Planetos had two originally. Also, the reason why Mercury doesn't have one is because it doesn't have gravity strong enough to hold one. And if one, uh, if Mercury had one, it's uh, Mercury so close to the sun that the sun's gravity would pull the moon into its gravity and make it crash into Mercury itself. Basically, it would turn the moon into another planet on Mercury's orbit, and so eventually they would collide. So is it possible that something like that happened in Planetos, uh, that the planet had a catastrophe that pushed 
uh, the moon so close to its gravity and make one of the moons crash into the own planet? No, I don't think so, because if an entire moon crashed into the planet, everything would die. Um, so no, I, I think that's probably too far-fetched. And also, uh, planetos is like Earth, and Earth is not close enough to the sun for that to happen like Mercury is. However, um, you're bringing up the question of the idea of it's not far-fetched to believe that planetos had two moons originally. Most planets have more than one moon. Earth is actually... Um, uh, okay, so... Okay, two things. Okay, so... Sorry, I'm reading the chat at the same time. Um, most planets have more than one moon. Earth is kind of rare for having only one moon. And uh, somebody just spotted this in Dune the other day. I believe it was... Um, I believe it was Blue Tiger. Blue Tiger, tell me if this was you. But uh, with Dune, there is... Uh, Arrakis has two moons. Arrakis is Dune, the desert planet. And Paul Atreides takes his name from the shadow on the second moon, which is Muad'Dib. That's interesting by itself, just because there's two moons, and by the way, George is heavily influenced by Dune. So there's two moons. The hero figure is named after a shadow of the second moon. That sounds like Azor Ahai as a shadow of the fire moon, Azor Ahai Reborn anyway. But the really great thing is that apparently Arrakis used to have three moons, and the third moon, you'll never guess why it's not here anymore. That's right, it got hit by a comet. So a comet eliminating a moon is actually a dune idea, as well as a thundar idea. So, uh, you know, it's floating out there. <clears throat> so Akira is correcting her earlier statement about tigers and dragons, and she says, the dragon and the tiger represent yin, which is female, and yang, male energies. The dragon represents yang, and the tiger represents yin. So there you go. It's actually tigers on the black side and dragons on the white side. So I'll have to check into that, Akira, and see if that maybe plays into what George is saying with the white dragons, uh, because the white dragon is an important symbol, and it's very different from Beleriand, the black dragon. So I will check into that, and if it seems that George is applying that, I will mention it. All right. <clears throat> Brian Taylor from YouTube says, Your talk of Mel and her shadow children got me thinking. There are many different Last Hero accounts all over the world, all with different names based on the language, religion, etc. The name Eldrick Shadow Chaser got me wondering if this name isn't really symbolic of anything, and he was actually chasing shadows and or the people who made them, meaning Shadow Chaser is fairly literal description, and I agree with that. This group of heroes could have been a cadre of warriors sent all over the world, similar to Craster using his wives to breed new White Walker, um, new White Walker fodder babies. So, <clears throat> I do think Eldrick Shadow Chaser is an important figure. We're given five names for Azor High in the world of Ice and Fire. Azor High, Eldrick Shadow Chaser, Yintar, Nefarion, and um, uh, Hercoon the Hero. So four of those names tie to specific places in the East. Yintar is obviously the Yitish version. Azor Ahai is from Ashai. Nefarion is from Nefer, which is a little city that used to be a kingdom in northern Essos. And um, Eldric Shadow, not Eldric Shadow, so Hercoon the Hero comes from Hercoon, which is another land that used to be inside the Great Empire of the Dawn Territory. 
Eldrick Shadow Chaser, however, is hard to place. Um, he sounds like a Westerosi dude, quite frankly. <clears throat> and let me go ahead. Um, so basically, there's there's an Edric Snowbeard Stark, and there's an Elric Stark. Then there's an Edric Dane and an Ulric Dane. So the name Eldric basically would appear to have parallels with two Starks and two Danes. And of course, the current Lord of Starfall is Edric Dane, who's called Ned, and he's named after Ned. So he's an Edric Dane that's named after a Stark. So I think Edric uh, Shadow Chaser, Eldric Shadow Chaser, rather, is basically the name for the last hero or the Westerosi name for Azor High or whichever one of the Azor High people came to Westeros or however that works. So let me read you a couple quotes about shadow chasing. Blue Tiger is pointing out that El means star in Tolkien's Elvish language. El is also, of course, the word for God in the Hebrew language. So that's pretty interesting. All right. So, uh, and yes, whose whore am I? Sounds like another Azor High fellow, but he's not explicitly listed as one of the five. So I'm not including him for the moment. All right. So here's the quote from A Storm of Swords. The chamber of the painted table was dark and empty when Davos entered. The king would still be at his night fire with Melisandre and the queen's men. He knelt and made a fire in the hearth to drive the chill from the round chamber and chase the shadows back into their corners. Then he went around the room to each window in turn, opening the heavy velvet curtains and unlatching the wooden shutters. The wind came in, strong with the smell of salt and sea, and pulled at his plain brown cloak. Let's see. At the north window... He leaned against the sill for a breath of cold night air, hoping to catch a glimpse of Mad Prendos raising sail. But the sea seemed black and empty as far as the eye could see. Is she gone already? He could only pray that he was, and the boy with her. And that's Edric Storm he's talking about. A half-moon was sliding in and out amongst the thin, high clouds. Well, that sounds pretty sexy. And Davos could see familiar stars. There was the galley sailing west. There the crone's lantern, four bright stars that enclosed a golden haze. The clouds hid most of the ice dragon, all but the bright blue eye that marked due north. The sky is full of smuggler stars. They were old friends, these stars. Davos hoped that meant good luck. But when he lowered his gaze from the sky to the castle ramparts, he was not so certain. The wings of the stone dragons cast great black shadows in the light from the night fire. He tried to tell himself that there was no, they were no more than carvings, cold and lifeless. This was their place once, a place of dragons and dragon lords, the seat of House Targaryen. The dragons were the blood of Valyria. The wind sighed through the chamber, and in the heart the flames gusted and swirled. He listened to the logs crackle and spit. When Davos left the window, his shadow went before him, tall and thin, and fell across the painted table like a sword. And there he stood for a long time, waiting. He heard their boots on the stone steps as they ascended. The king's voice went before him. Is not three, he was saying. So, what's going on in the scene? is Davos has just helped uh, Edric Storm escape, so he can't be sacrificed. And then he, having done this deed, basically goes up to Stannis' chamber to await judgment. And Davos is an Azor Ahai reborn character, by the way. He's got the signature hand wound. He's uh, drowned and burned at the black water, and he's reborn amidst smoke and salt, and there's some other clues about that. In any case, um, here's Davos standing in front of the painted table, First, he's chasing the shadows into the corner, and then he's casting a shadow over the table that's like a sword. And, of course, we know that a shadow sword is a Lightbringer symbol, 
such as when Stannis' shadow killed Renly. And it says that Renly's sword was still in its scabbard, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Cold, Renly said in a small, puzzled voice, a heartbeat before the steel of his gorge had parted like cheesecloth, beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. So it's called a shadow sword and then a shadow of a blade that was not there. There's another time when Theon thinks about uh, the shadow of Ned's longsword ice always laying between them because he's a hostage and can be killed. So there's a bunch of shadow sword symbolism. Uh, the dragon's teeth are like daggers and swords made of darkness. I talked about that a little bit. So essentially, um, Davos' shadow chaser is wielding a shadow sword, and that is all Lightbringer stuff. And then the other thing about shadows is that um, the High Tower does the same thing. It, uh, the shadow of the High Tower falls over Old Town like, and cuts the city like a sword. And High Tower itself is a white tower, and the sigil of the High Towers is a white tower with flames on top. So that's almost like a white sword or even a white burning sword, but it's casting a black shadow sword. So it kind of hints that the white sword and the black sword are some sort of pair of opposites. That's what I think is going on. Um, uh, so here's so Davos chases the shadows, right? And we maybe that's just maybe that's just the coincidental language or whatever. But check this out: his son does it too. <laughs> so this is uh, Dance with Dragons, Melisandre. Dawn, another day is given us. Relor be praised. The terrors of the night recede. Melisandre has spent the night in her chair by the fire. She often did. With Stannis gone, her bed saw little use. There's the big clue about Stannis and Mel sleeping with each other, by the way. She had no time for sleep with the weight of the world upon her shoulders, and she feared to dream. Sleep is a little death, dreams the whisperings of the other, who would drag us all into his eternal night. She would sooner sit bathed in the ruddy glow of her red lord's blessed flames, her cheeks flushed by the wash of heat as if by a lover's kiss. Some nights she drowsed, but never for more than an hour. One day, Melisandre prayed, she would not sleep at all. One day, she would be free of dreams. Melanie, she thought, Lot 7. Devon fed fresh logs to the fire until the flames leapt up again, fierce and furious, driving the shadows back into the corners of the room, devouring all her unwanted dreams. So that's pretty cool. You've got uh, driving the shadows back into the corners. That's the exact same language, chasing the shadows into the corners, driving the shadows into the corners. And these shadows are even devouring her dreams, which is sort of getting back to the whole shadow baby idea. <clears throat> because Stannis experiences everything that the shadow baby does in a dream while it's happening. And then it says, uh, The dark recedes again for a little while, but beyond the wall the enemy grows stronger, and should he win, the dawn will never come again. He wondered if it had been his face that she had seen staring out from her from the flames. No, surely not. His visage would be more frightening than that, cold and black and too terrible for any man to gaze upon and live. The wooden man she had glimpsed, though, and the boy with the wolf's face, they were his servants, surely, his champions, as Stannis was hers. Melisandre went to the window, pushed open the shutters. Outside, the east had just begun to lighten, and the stars of morning still hung in a pitch-black sky. Castle Black was already beginning to stir as men in black cloaks made their way across the yard to break their fast with bowls of porridge before they relieved their brothers atop the wall. So I'm pointing out, I included that last bit of the quote because... In the first quote about chasing the shadows, Davos was thinking about the ice dragon, he was thinking about Edric Storm, and then he was thinking about Stannis coming back up to punish him, and Stannis actually draws Lightbringer at the end of that chapter. So, um, 
There you go. Uh, Melanie's saying she popped in and out. I missed some of this. Melanie, you will want to watch back. I answered a bunch of your questions, and they were good questions. So thank you very much. And then so in the second quote, Devin is chasing the shadows. And what's Mel talking about? She's talking about um, the Black Brothers manning the wall, which, again, that's if Eldrick Shadow Chaser is the last hero, that's what he did. And there's also reference to the Stars of Mourning which sounds like the morning star. So there's, whenever you see uh, a red flag phrase like chasing the shadows, first thing I do is look around to see what else is around it. Is it grouped with other symbols that are similar? So we've got two scenes with shadow chasing. And they both have similar symbolism. So that's enough for me to think, okay, I've got to dig deeper and figure out what's going on here. So there you go. There's a shadow chaser. That's, a, that's one of my favorite topics. Oh, you know what? The first, uh, I did a live stream before with Snapple and everyone's like, read the Snapple cap. What's the Snapple fact? I was drinking a big Snapple that didn't have the Snapple facts. However, real fact number 305. The fourth Earl of Sandwich invented the sandwich so he could eat and gamble at the same time. Gotta like that. And I actually love sandwiches. I ate a sandwich today. So there you go. Let's see, question from H.G. Wells, all the way from 1899. The rubies worn by Mel and the priestesses of Relore seem to hold a psychic charge, the source of their magic. Could they be actual fragments of the red comet brought down with the meteors? Probably not. I think it's more just like a symbolic uh, parallel of blood and fire, um, which sort of ties into the comet in a sense. But I, you know, I don't think rubies would make sense as comet you know, meteorite material. That would have to be something more like the Pale Stone of Dawn or the Black Stone that's, you know, more obviously meteorite, I would think. Thank God for sandwiches. Damn straight. Let's see. Okay, so John Eyes from Patreon has a couple of good questions. He says, this is amazing. Thanks, John. As always, I am so in love with this essay. Arthur Dane is the superlative example of honor and duty. The King's Guard and the Kings of Winter. Duty, justice, honor, oaths, and sweet, sweet death. So one has to wonder, what oaths and duties are the others fulfilling? The million-dollar question. So yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good uh, extrapolation. So at the end of the last episode, I threw out this whole idea that others and King's Guard are serving as symbolic parallels for each other. And so... Th- once you sort of figure that out, there's a lot you can extrapolate from that because the Kingsguard essentially become symbolic stands in for the others. One of the potential ramifications is that the, the Kingsguard are bound by an oath. And obviously at the Tower of Joy, much is made of their oaths. So what are the others? What oath are they fulfilling? What duty? What's their oath? What's their, what's their job? Well, the Kingsguard... And this is actually uh, getting into the next episode. But the Kingsguard was created by Visenya to protect Aegon the Conqueror. Now, Visenya, as I'm going to show you, is the Ice Moon Bride of Rhaegar. And so Rhaegar is with his Ice Moon... Rhaegar is basically a dark solar figure. And he's creating Kingsguard with the Ice Moon Woman, who is Visenya. And the Kingsguard are like the others. So the others are protecting Aegon. Aegon is a dark solar figure, I believe, 
basically parallels Knight's King because I think Knight's King has a tie to Azora High. And so essentially the others are sworn to protect the Knight's King potentially. And Knight's King in the, in the books, I don't think is going to exist in the same way that Knight's King does in the show. However, I do have a theory that he is like some sort of presence stuck inside the Weirwood net. And there's obviously a lot of clues about the others coming from the Weirwoods. So I think whatever oath they are keeping might have to do with protecting... That doesn't really make sense, though, because they're really sort of ending all life, not really protecting the Weirwoods. It almost seems like an oath gone wrong, perhaps. Like an oath that's been twisted. I don't know. It's... it's um. There's not an obvious answer to this. It's that's why he says it's the million dollar question. It's really one we'll just have to to see about. But any of you guys in the chat have thoughts about that? What oath could the others be fulfilling or sworn to? If you remember the um the, obviously the Black Brothers are called the Night's Watch and the Watchers on the Walls, but in the prologue the others are called Watchers twice. And so there's a lot about the Black Brothers and the others being sort of having some sort of long lost brother relationship. Protect the earth from what? Will be from mankind, the people who are burning the weirwood trees, it would be. But I haven't seen that the others are actually protecting the weirwoods. Because if they kill all life on earth and turn everything into a frozen hellscape, I'm not sure the weirwoods would survive. So yeah, a corrupted form of a protection oath, says Sanrixian. I think that's something along that, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, I guess this is where I'm supposed to tell everybody to smash the like button. If you're here watching, might as well take a couple seconds and just click like. That helps uh, it helps things get bumped up and more people will see it. So, next question from John Iseis. An aside concerning Dawn. One of the metals that we've found abundantly in real-life moon rocks is titanium. It's extremely light, extremely strong, doesn't corrode, and it's metallic white. That's pretty cool. So, I made a big deal about bloodstone in the second and third Bloodstone Compendium episodes, and I compared the meteors to Bloodstone over and over and all the sort of supposed mythical properties of Bloodstone. Now, I did make clear that I don't actually think the moon was made out of heliotrope, like out of actual Bloodstone. Rather, I think that Bloodstone is serving as a symbol of the moon rocks. Um, And so when we think about the white meteors, I think that... George is drawing from the symbolism of phosphorus in particular, because phosphorus means morning star. Phosphorus is a white mineral. Phosphorus burns brightly and it burns with a white flame. Uh, So I think that titanium could also be in the mix, for example. Like bloodstone is the main influence for the the meteors, but he's also working um, on hematite. Hematite literally means bloodstone. A hema is like hemoglobin. And uh, hematite has that rusty red because it has a high iron content, just like blood. Um, And there's some mythical properties of hematite that sort of play in too. So what I feel like is that when George creates a fantasy rock, like the pale stone for dawn or these black meteors, he sort of draws from different things, like the Lovecraftian meteors, the ideas of bloodstone, and and bakes up the black meteor. So it's very possible that titanium is something that he was thinking about, especially if it's in moon rocks. Um, George does have a sci-fi background, and so he's not ignorant of things like that. 
By the way, who's listened to the new Primus album? The Desaturating Seven. So good. Just thought I'd throw that out. Anyways, Sharla Beverly from YouTube and Patreon asks, I was thinking that since the Danes were probably descendants of the Gemstone Emperors and they had white swords in Danny's vision, that Dawn might come from them. This is another one of those million-dollar questions. There are two... Uh, two potential origin theories for dawn and they might not be exclusive obviously the dawn equals ice is one of those theories but the other theory is that dawn is pre-long night great empire of the dawn sword technology okay so check out this quote from a game of thrones this is a daenerys chapter this is during her wake the dragon dream it says ghosts lined the hallway dressed in the faded raiment of kings in their hands were swords of pale fire They had hair of silver and hair of gold and hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. Faster, they cried, faster. She raced, her feet melting the stone wherever they touched. Faster, the ghost cried as one, and she screamed and threw herself forward. A great knife of pain ripped down her back, and she felt her skin tear open and smelled the stench of burning blood and saw the shadow of wings, and Daenerys Targaryen flew. So obviously the key line there is that they are holding swords of pale fire. Now, these gemstone-eyed kingly ghosts that, with Valerian hair seem to be the ancestors of the Valerians from the Great Empire of the Dawn because those four gemstones match four of the eight gemstones of the Great Empire emperors, and they're holding swords of pale fire. I do think that if Dawn is able to light on fire, that the fire would be pale fire, white fire, or maybe like silvery blue fire, one of those things. And so a pale fire sword definitely could be a clue about dawn they're called the great empire of the dawn azor high comes from the great empire of the dawn and whatever you think about dawn it is a sword that's been forged from a meteorite so we're still like we don't know exactly what it is because it's kind of like valerian steel except for it's white but it was forged or hammered out or something and so it begs the question of well the first men only had bronze technology who the hell forged this very advanced sword in the Dawn Age, the Great Empire of the Dawn would be a likely culprit. Now, the thing is, they could have done that in the East, or they could have come to Westeros and applied their technology to the Dawn meteorite that fell in in Westeros. Those are all possible. So let me throw this idea at you. If Dawn is the original ice, and if that icy meteor fell in the north somewhere, then maybe the, the Dane origin story of following a, the heart of a falling star and making a sword out of it is actually not the story of Dawn, but rather the story of Lightbringer and the Black Meteor. So think about this. Azor High, or the Bloodstone Emperor, or if they're the same person, he worshipped the Black Stone, and I claim he made the sword out of the Black Meteor. Now, the Danes are descended from the Great Empire of the Dawn, again, according to theory, So it's very possible that what happened is they took the myth of making a sword from a meteor, which is from the east, with them when they came to Westeros. That happens in the real world all the time, where when a culture, not all the time, but it definitely happens, where a people relocate and they bring their myths with them and they sort of reapply them to the local place names. And remember, the Danes came to Westeros like 10,000 years ago, so that's plenty of time for a meteor sword story from the east to be re-sort of applied to Starfall. And then later, 
somehow, whatever, the King of Winter brings that white sword south, and there's a sword fight, and the Danes end up with the sword as keepers or guardians or whatever the story goes, then they would come to associate the meteor sword story with Dawn when actually it's referring to Lightbringer. So I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying that is a very plausible thing that could have happened based on the way that myth works. And so potentially Dawn is actually not the, not the sword from that story. So you could have a, switcho, a switcheroo there. Now, the other thing I'll say about um, Dawn and Shy and the Great Empire of the Dawn is at the end of this episode, I gave you the milk glass quote, right? And that was a weird one because milk glass, or not milk glass, ghost grass. So ghost grass goes around to Shy and its stalks are as pale as milk glass and they're as tall as a man. So basically, it's kind of like a field of Dawn swords, like I said. Um, but the thing is, they glow in the dark with the ghosts of the damned. And who would the damned souls be in that area around Ashai? They would be all the dead people from the Great Empire of the Dawn, right? So there's this implication that the ghost grass, it's almost like tombstones for the dead people of the Great Empire of the Dawn, if it's glowing with ghost light. Final piece of the puzzle, we're told that when Azor Ahai stabbed Nissanissa with Lightbringer, Lightbringer drank her soul and her energy and her strength and her courage and all that. So the idea of swords drinking souls, it's in the Lightbringer myth, and it's also a classic fantasy trope. So we've got these field of, this field of ghost grass that looks like a bunch of dawn swords, and they're glowing with ghost light. So there's definitely an implication that dawn, the actual sword dawn, is tied to the great empire of the dawn and their heritage. So the thing is that once the Great Empire of the Dawn comes to Westeros and some of those people become Last Hero or Knight's King or Danes or Starks or any of that, it's now basically impossible to tell where it's, which sword was forged where. Um, so basically, I've long considered Dawn to have two potential origins. It's either this icy origin in the north or it's the, like, the original flaming sword tech. Think about the Great Empire of the Dawn people having the Pale Fire Swords, but then evil Azor Ahai, if I'm right about my general theorizing, he made his sword from a black meteor. Maybe that thing burned with, like, black and red fire. That's, that's my preference. So maybe, like, the Pale Fire indicates, like, the pure sword technology. Maybe it didn't involve human sacrifice. And then along comes Azor Ahai, the Bloodstone Emperor. He basically twists all the natural magic that the Great Empire had, and now they're making Blackfire swords. So it's like a fallen version. And if that's true, then Dawn is like the original, the OG. Like, it was Lightbringer before Lightbringer. It's the original Lightbringer technology. And Azor Ahai's Black Sword would be like a corrupt version of it. So I think I've talked that one out. Uh, oh, one line I forgot. Uh, so the Ghost Grass paragraph... It ends with a line that I left out. It says, The Dothraki claim that someday ghost grass will cover the entire world, and then all life will end. And then it says, That thought gave Danny the shivers. <laughs> so, not only does ghost grass look like dawn and glow with ghost light, just like the swords of the others, it gives Danny the shivers. I thought that was cool. <clears throat> uh, okay, Melanie, I, uh, I think I got some more of your questions coming up here. Yes. Melanie, you're double-teaming me. You're giving me a question in the chat, and I got your question up on the screen here. 
<laughs> she says, what do you think of blood magic being the original sin in regards to different types of magic? Um, so yeah, you asked an expanded version of that also. No, it's okay. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Um, so, uh, I do think it's possible that all magic is, uh, related to one another. It's all common or it all has the same mana because Melisandre is a fire priestess and she can draw strength from the hinge of the world that is the wall and the wall is made out of ice. So obviously like, even though Melisandre, I don't think Melisandre could necessarily wield ice like the others do. I do think that the others and Melisandre can both draw from the same magical source. Um, and I also think it's possible that um, Greenseer magic is the original magic uh, and that all magic could be blood magic. Like both of those ideas are possible because we're pretty much see blood almost everywhere we see magic. And I think about blood as being similar to fire or ice or water or wind. It's kind of like a natural element. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not an element of nature. It's an element of the body and of living things. But blood has pretty much always been regarded as powerful. And so, essentially, I, I think that George is saying you can draw or channel magic through ice or fire or wind or water or life itself, which is blood. Um, and there may be an underlying commonality. And another thing is that the dragon bond might be a mutated form of green seer or skin changer magic, and the others are heavily tied to weirwoods and the children of the forest. So it's possible that ice magic comes from green seer magic too. So, yes, exactly. I think the elements are the tools by which magic is manifested or accessed. So uh, I also would probably be good to remind everyone of Martin's quote about magic. He wants to keep it mysterious. He doesn't like magic systems. So even though he does have like groupings and rules and stuff, um, we probably shouldn't try to take it too far in that, in that direction. Uh, let's see. Leslie Powell says, not sure if you discussed the significance of the crescent moon and its association with House Arryn and the location of the Eerie in the Vale. I've mentioned it in passing. It's a tremendous ice moon symbol. It's a blue flag with a crescent moon on it. So the Eerie is a white stone place covered in ice and the white marble is veined with blue. And we're going to have a whole episode about that. So do you think the others are pretty generic, simple, evil creatures? No, I do not, Linus. I think the others were wronged in some way and they are revenge is part of their motivation. I think you can look at them as sort of evil creatures and that they're just trying to end all life. I don't think they'll be the good guys or anything, but they, there's a story behind them. They're not just orcs. I mean, orcs have a story too, so, I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I think there is a major secret about the others that will help us understand them better that we don't understand yet. I think that's coming. So, let's see, DNA, oh yeah, that's a good point. Monica Lamos is pointing out on a symbolic level, DNA stores information or knowledge. So yeah, that's, that definitely works. And blood is, blood is related to so many things, knowledge and fire uh, and power. So yeah, all right. Melanie Patrick asks, as always, thank you so much for sharing your ideas. It's always such a pleasure listening to such measured logical analysis. I do try very hard to refrain from letting anything become like overly tinfoilish. That's why I like to sort of offer a range of possibilities as opposed to saying, uh, you know, here's the secret story of 10,000 years ago because it's hard to tell. It's hard to pin it down. In any case, 
Where could a chunk of the ice moon be hanging out if one did indeed make it to Planetos? Could it be the heart of winter? Yes, that's the most obvious place. Could this be the analog of the black stone the Bloodstone Emperor worshipped? Yes, absolutely. Could a white ice moon chunk be the core of ice magic on Planetos that awoke the others or is powering ice magic? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, I think it's a pretty good chance that that is the case. That's what's in the heart of winter. Either a black or a white meteor. Probably a white one. That would be sweet to find that. Let's see. Do I think the children are trying to reclaim Westeros? No, I do not. I believe I take the children at their word when they say that they're vanishing quietly into the night and their days are coming to an end. I think they do accept that. Um, However, I do think they have motives similar to other nature spirits and that they're trying to protect nature from people who would do it harm, which means they might want to kill people sometimes. Let's see here. Melanie Patrick, Patreon. Um, Oh, you know what? Blue Tiger asked another question way at the beginning that I forgot to answer. He asked, will we ever be able to tell if mythical astronomy is right? Will we get proof? So I think yes. I think we'll either see Bran... Um, witnessing the hammer of the waters or some something like that in a weirwood vision, or we will get the uh, the ice moon. We'll get another meteor event, and that will pretty much act as confirmation if that happens. Um, however, we could also get. Let's see, what was I going to say? There was another thought I had. Oh yeah, so if we were to find that white meteor somewhere in the heart of winter. Uh, in like the other's temple or something, then that would be a confirmation as well. So we'll have to see. Also, um, if Dawn comes out to play again, we might see something happen that gives us a clue. Um, Dane Dupont. Lightbringer, let's see. How, let's see. One question I have, I've been curious about, is how your astronomy theories would negotiate Ned plus Ashar equals John if it happens in the books. Um, whoops. Let me see here. First of all, uh, I'm pretty firm RLJ believer. I have looked at the alternatives, and I know I will disappoint like 15% of you, but I do not think the RLJ alternatives really have much chance of happening or any evidence to support them. I'm not trying to be dogmatic. It's just my opinion. Uh, I don't specialize in the parentage stuff, so don't take my word as like some authoritative thing. It's just an average opinion as far as the bloodlines go. I don't really have secret knowledge about that. Um, as you guys know, there are so many different moon maidens that stand in for Nissa Nissa. So if the parentages change, it doesn't really mess up the symbolism necessarily. Um, but I just, I really don't think that's going to be the case. And if it does turn out that RL, something other than RLJ is the case, then I'll be able to tell you what sense it makes after we find out what happens. But um, yeah. I'm I'm pretty much on the RLJ train. So again, sorry if you're a if you like one of the other theories. Um, don't hate me. I don't hate you. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, so Brian Taylor from YouTube says: So if original ice went south, did original Dawn get melted down into two blades? Perhaps Ned walking around with Dawn the whole time before he died would be something George would do. So. When he says original Dawn, I think he means Lightbringer. He's saying if if the sword we think of as Dawn, the white sword, is ice, then what was original Dawn? Well, that would be the black Lightbringer sword of Azor High. And so I guess he's asking me if Ned's ice could be the original black sword of Azor High. Well, I actually used to think so. Um, 
It's one of my favorite tinfoils, simply because of when Tobomot reforges Ned's blade, that line about it drank the sun from the coloring. And I mostly associated that drinking the light with the greasy black stone and the, um, the meteor dragons that came from the moon that drank the fire of the sun. And so I was looking at Ned's sword going, oh my God, it drinks the light. This is a meteor sword. It's not really four year, 400 years old from Valeria. It must have been like hidden in the crypts. It's the original Lightbringer. But then I found several other places that drink the light. Um, Renly's, um, no, not Renly's Temple. That's alive with light. Um, the uh, House of the Undying drinks the light. Uh, when the dragons burn the stone in the pit under Marine, it drinks the light. And I think there is one other example. Um, so now I, I tend to think that it's mostly symbolism and that Ned's sword really is a 400-year-old Valyrian sword. And the original black Lightbringer sword, probably we won't see it. Um, but if it is in the story, Ned's ice would be the one. Um, and then we'd have to, obviously there's a big lie about it coming from Valyria 400 years ago. So I'm not sure how we'd figure that out or get the truth of that, but <clears throat> that would be sweet. Uh, amazing episode. That second section gave me chills. <laughs> I assume that's an excellent pun on your part, Brian Taylor. Let's see. Lucifer means Lightbringer. Fire Moon split in two. And Fire Sword split in two. Do we have to destroy the Ice Moon Sword as well to regain balance? In other words, will Dawn break? Yeah, it could happen. Maybe reforge it with the two companion Fire Swords to get old Lightbringer. The faceless paid in Old Town could be searching for these reforging methods as opposed to the methods of Valerian forging. Um, he is referred to as the Alchemist. And I think Lightbringer is George's version of the Philosopher's Stone, in a sense. I do agree with that last bit. Um... I do think Pate's probably looking for that book about how to kill dragons. But there are there is a chance that reforging Valerian steel is something that Gendry might have learned from Tobo Mott. Um and I guess I guess we could get knowledge like that coming from the Citadel. Um so then as far as the split swords, we do get a lot of split swords. Ned's swords split in half. Beric Dondarian's flaming sword is broken in half. The original Dondarian broke his sword when uh, the lightning struck the tree, and that was like the whole Dondarian house founding myth, there's the last hero's sword broke, and the second sons have a broken sword symbol, the Titan of Bravos has a broken sword, on and on and on. There's a lot of breaking swords. And obviously Dawn breaks. That's what Dawn does when the sun rises. It breaks. So there's a lot of broken swords going around, and there's also... I'll see you later, Blue Tiger. Thanks for dropping by. And there's also, um, so I brought up that sigil of House Faring, right? It's the white knight on a purple field and a purple knight on a white field. The purple knight has a purple sword. The white knight has a white sword. And where the sword tips uh, cross over the middle, they change. So the white sword becomes purple. The purple sword becomes white. That makes me wonder, it's show, is that meant to show us a sword that's made out of two opposite materials? Like, did we... Did the original black Lightbringer sword get broken and then reforged? Because remember, the last hero said that his sword snapped from the cold, and then later he reappears with Dragonsteel slaying the others. And so it's kind of implied that he either got a new sword or reforged his sword. So this is, again, where I resist getting too specific so I don't sound like crack pottery, but there's a damn lot of clues about swords breaking, swords being reforged, 
And I think it's really important. And um, it's possible, you know, with ice and fire that that, uh, the ultimate sword is made from ice and fire materials mixed together somehow. Um, So maybe Dawn has like some black material inside of it or something like in the core or maybe the I've even thought about what if Dawn actually isn't made from a pale stone. Maybe if you take the black stone and melt it down and purify it, you can get a pale sword. Um, I don't really think that's the case, but could be. So basically, I guess to answer that question, let's just see and wait and see if Gendry reforges um, Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper, or if we see Dawn come out, uh, if we see Dawn break. So are all things that could happen. Septa Shana's Sapphires, who has a YouTube channel that is worth checking out, asks, if they switch the swords, then surely they switched the babes. And here, I guess they're talking about potential children of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa. And that is very possible. So there is a good quote I pulled for this. And this is uh, John in A Dance with Dragons. It says, Ghost slept at the foot of the bed that night, and for once John did not dream he was a wolf. Even so, he slept fitfully, tossing for hours before sliding down into a nightmare. Gilly was in it, weeping, pleading with him to leave her babes alone. Her babe alone. But he ripped the children from her arms and hacked their heads off, then swapped the heads around and told her to sew them back in place. Now, this is a dream about John feeling guilty for swapping Mance and Dalla's boy with Gilly's boy. That's pretty obviously that i mean that's what just happened in the story and it was a hard choice that he had to do and he feels guilty about it however we know that children and swords can be uh parallel symbols and here we have the heads of the babies being swapped so that's kind of like two broken swords being swapped and reforged together and i've always wondered if uh if that's a clue about that so you'll have to make up your mind but i think that quote is relevant H.G. Wells, all the way from 1899, who was in the chat today. So rather than being a discarded concept that never was, it sounds as though the white shadows and the black really are never born, from George's original synopsis letter to his prospective publisher. In 1993, a life never lived but instead robbed of its potential energy in the womb might be considered a particularly potent kind of sacrifice, the very essence of one that should have been born into the world by natural means, transmuted by magic, into a form most unnatural alive, in a sense, as an agent of one's belief system or the other, but in all the ways that matter, never born. It's a pretty interesting thought, right? As a side note, it's possible that the original white shadow babies conceived by the Night's Queen are the very same ones we see all these thousands of years later. Or is it possible? The sleepers now reawakened by the sacrifice of Craster's sons, perhaps, rather than them being recent and entirely new creations. Um, I do think there are some original others hanging around, that are like 8,000 years old. Yes, I do think that is possible, or even probable. And I think the others stirring again is actually probably tied to John's birth. That is my new guess. I'm going to explain why in a future Moons of Ice and Fire episode. So yes, some of the Night's Queen Shadow Babies could be the same ones we see now. And it's a good question as to how many others there are. I mean, we we really don't know. There might be more than six or seven. And uh, as far as the Neverborn idea, that is pretty interesting. Um, It's hard to tell if Neverborn is just a phrase George used and then dropped, or if he's actually thinking about the others in some context. 
obviously they're they're birthed in a really strange way, whatever the truth is. Uh, so I definitely think that's uh, the Neverborn might apply to the shadow baby birthing process. All right, Mr. Landby from YouTube says, it's criminal, your material doesn't get more attention. Well, it's starting to get some attention. Um, you know, it, it's been sort of steadily building up, so I'm actually really happy with the upward trajectory. There's definitely an upper jet stream of content providers that I'm not uh, quite in yet, but uh, I'll get there with everyone's support. So please share this stuff away and tell everyone how cool it is. But I appreciate the compliment. Sidney uh, says, I'm glad you're connected. Uh, you've connected the Kingsguard and the others. One point you missed was that Visenya modeled the Kingsguard vows on the Night's Watch vows in another inverted parallel. The scene in A Clash of Kings with Tyrion on the bridge of ships is another candidate for in-depth analysis as well. Also, I came across this quote from Danny right before she conquered Astapor. That night she dreamt she was Rhaegar riding to the Trident. She was mounted on the dragon. Whoops, wrong way. She was mounted on the dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armed all in ice, but she bathed them all in dragon fire, and they melted away like dew and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exalted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I've only now awakened. So, going back, um, I actually didn't forget that Visenya modeled the Kingsguard vows on the Night's Watch. I am just saving that for the next episode. But you're right on the money there. Uh, it is an inverted parallel. And um, the whole Visenya connection to the Kingsguard is really important. And I'm going to talk all about that for like an hour. The scene in A Clash of Kings on the Bridge of Ships. Um, I actually did mention that briefly when Sir Mandon Moore was a white steel shadow. There were streaks of fire in between the stars in that scene. So we had some meteor shower action. The entire Battle of the Blackwater is just loaded with symbolism. I've referred to it a bunch of times, and I'm not done coming back there by any means. One time I thought I would do an episode all about it, but it ties into so many different um, concepts that I've just been sort of picking at it uh, as needed in the different episodes. Uh, the, the Blackwater Rush turns into the mouth of hell when the chain is across it. And those of you who have read um, Weirwood Compendium know that chains and booms and bridges all tie into the weir symbolism. And so we've got a chain that's basically a flaming weir across the mouth of hell. So there's all kinds of implications there. Melanie Patrick gave me a lot of good questions. Like I said, I sort of sprinkled them through. Are the ice eyes of the Northmen, such as Brandon Ice Eyes, the Boltons, Ned, and John, all representing the icy moon magic of the North, or is there more? What about Simeon's star eyes, his double-ended scythe in the sapphires in place where his eyes had been? Do you think he shares a more direct symbolism with the others than the ice eyes? As I'm sure you know, he was a hero mentioned alongside the likes of Florian the Fool and Bran the Builder. Do you think that the ice-eyed... Blind people like Simeon, the kings in the north, and the night's watchmen who must chip the ice off their eyes are the just ice bringers, justice bringers, who delivered death and or ushered living beings from the world of the living to the world of the dead. So the ice eyes thing is pretty interesting. Um, it's applied most clearly to the Boltons and to Jon Snow and the Watch. However, it also appears on Cersei and a couple other people that are kind of random. So I'd have to read all those scenes to figure it out. Um, 
So there's one quote I'll read. This is from Tyrion. It says, Not so, objected the Lord Steward, Bowen Marsh, a man as round and red as a pomegranate. You ought to hear the droll names he gives the lads he trains. Tyrion had heard a few of those droll names. I'll wager the lads have a few names for him as well, he said. Chip the ice off your eyes, my good lords. Sir Alistair Thorne should be mucking out your stables, not drilling your young warriors. So then that's the whole Night's Watch having ice eyes. Then we've got Reek. He said, uh, talking about Ramsay, he had his lord father's eyes, small, close-set, queerly pale, ghost gray, some men called the shade, but in truth his eyes were all but colorless, like two chips of dirty ice. And then in the uh, wedding scene at Winterfell, um, in the mist, everybody looks like animals. And it says, Roose Bolton's own face was a pale gray mask with two chips of dirty ice where his eyes should be. Then when Arya sees Roose Bolton in A Clash of Kings, it says, only his eyes moved. They were pale the color of ice. And then um, when Ned looks at Gendry's eyes, it says, Ned studied the shape of his eyes, the eyes, uh, shape of his jaw. The eyes like blue ice. Those are Baratheon blue eyes. And then uh, it says, It was Lord Snow's face who faced him now, gray eyes as hard as ice. So there's John with ice eyes. But then uh, Jamie in A Feast for Crows looks at Cersei and says, The queen's eyes were green ice. And when he sees Lady Cybele Westerling, it says she looked at him with eyes like chips of ice. So I think the ice eyes are actually being used in a very mundane way in the sense of like this is anytime a person looks hard and stern and hateful, they can have ice eyes. However, I would guess there's symbolism going on in those scenes as well. So I'd really have to look at those scenes individually and see why Martin is choosing to give these various people ice eyes at this particular moment. So the other thing I'll say about ice is that Oh, and uh, John Connington has ice eyes, too. Tyrion says, I do not like his eyes, Tyrion reflected, when the sellsword sat down across from him in the dimness of the boat's interior with a scarred plank table and a tallow candle between them. They were ice blue, pale, and cold. So I would just remind you that ice is not always on the side of the others. The Night's Watch use frozen fire to fight the others. And frozen fire looks like black ice, and it's frozen. And Valyrian steel, such as Ned's blade, Ned's blade is called ice, and yet it's Valyrian steel that will probably kill others. And uh, Cold Hands fights the others, but he's a frozen zombie. So essentially I think that uh, there are two sides to ice and two sides to fire. And yes, thank you, Melanie Patrick, John is armored in black ice in the dream where he wields a burning red sword. Um, so ice eyes do not necessarily mean others. I will just say that and probably going to have to come back to that idea in a future episode. Take a look at the chat real quick. Do I have a theory on who cold hands is? I think he's a dead skin changer. And I talked about that in sacred order of green zombies. Um, I'm more sure of what he is than who he could be one of the last hero's companions or the last hero himself or the night's king himself or he could just be a Night's Watchman skin changer. I think he's probably 8,000 years old, though. That's kind of my take on it, is that he's, he's from the Last Heroes group. But uh, main thing is dead skin changer, like John's about to be. Um, any examples of fire eyes? Oh, yeah. Melisandre has burning eyes. Lady Stoneheart has burning eyes. 
Um, all the direwolves and dragons have burning eyes. Yeah, there's a bunch of things. Daniel Daniel from YouTube. Could you please talk a little bit about the magical duality between fire and ice? I get the feeling I'm missing out on something. Martin is trying to tell us something important here, and I'm not sure if I understand the big picture quite yet. So this is another one I'm going to only hint at because I'm going to deal with it in lots of detail um, in probably Moons of Ice and Fire 4, where I talk about RLJ and Jon Snow as the ice dragon. Essentially, we have frozen fire and burning ice. So if you look at a yin-yang symbol, there's a black side and a white side, but the white side has a black dot and the black side has a white dot in it. And that's because there's really no such thing as purity, according to Taoist philosophy. And everything contains an element of its opposite. And so George uh, references this many times in the books. There's one in particular where Jojen says, if love and hate, if uh, ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. And so frozen fire is obviously dragon glass. It's got the, ele- the uh, power of fire because it kills others, and yet itself is frozen. And then we have the others who, even though they're icy and cold, their eyes burn. Almost every time we see their eyes, they're blue stars or burning blue stars. Stars are obviously hot, and burning is burning. So even though the others are cold, there's like an active burning quality to the others. It's like cold flame or something. So I think George is kind of having a bunch of Taoist fun here by giving us fire that burns, or fire that is frozen and ice that burns, sort of like a little inversion there. And I'm going to explain what that all means and why that's important. But uh, the question from Daniel Daniel is right on the money. There is uh, a lot of ice and fire duality stuff that's going on. And it's more than just the idea that ice and fire are opposites that like balance each other. There's, there's more than that. And the frozen fire burning ice thing is where it's, what that's all about. So that's a major, yeah, nothing burns like the cold, exactly. Um, that's a major, major part of understanding the others. Essentially, there's two components to the others. There's this frozen fire burning cold element. And when I say frozen fire, I actually mean fire that's been turned cold. So I'll call that burning cold, I guess. And then the other big thing about the others is they come from the weirwoods. By the way, I am reading the chat. A lot of y'all are just saying nice things. Thanks for the great episode and whatnot. Really appreciate that. And I'm seeing all those comments. I guess I um, don't want to read too much of that or it just sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. But thanks for everyone. And uh, I'm seeing those. And when I say thanks, I mean like, thanks for keeping me fired up about this. If if no one read these things and no one cared, I wouldn't keep doing this probably. Um, and every time someone writes me and was like, dude, this is awesome. I enjoy the books now more because of this. Uh, It totally motivates me and fires me up. So thank you very much. And we've come to the end of the prepared questions. Perfect. And we're right at two hours. So I will now ask the chat if you've got any final... What's my favorite book in the series? Gosh, it's either A Clash of Kings or Dance with Dragons. I love A Clash of Kings has tons of great symbolism. I just love all the King's Landing chapters. I love the Tyrion chapters in King's Landing. I like the Danny chapters in the second book. John's journey in the Wildlings uh, and Corn Halfhand and Ygritte in the second book. Um, and it's just, you know, the first three have a real pace to them. And it, they're easy. They're easier to read. And I think Clash of Kings would be my favorite from those three. But A Dance with Dragons... Um, 
has the best symbolism. I think it has the best writing, like the Wayward Bride chapter, um, all Theon's Winterfell chapters. I was just thinking about today, um, Crow Food Umber's uh, band of green boys blowing the trumpets outside of Winterfell and everyone's inside of Winterfell, like turning on each other. I mean, that's really great writing. And Bran's chapters in A Dance with Dragons. I actually love all the Tyrion stuff on the Roin. It's full of intrigue and Blackfire stuff. And I, I love all of it. So I think ADWD is probably my favorite. And The Wayward Bride might be my favorite chapter. Uh, it's just it's just such great symbolism. Let's see. Uh, do I have any idea what Doran Martell is up to? No, not really. Not any special insight. I think it's just what it appears to be. He's plotting and scheming and was trying to ally with uh, Viserys, and now he's going to try to ally with Daenerys, but it's going to turn out that he's going to get Fagon instead. It will probably turn out tragic, but that's about all I can say. I would recommend everyone checking out uh, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. That's Brendan Beefish's blog. He's got a series about um, Blood of the Conqueror. It's all about Fagon and his invasion into Westeros in the next book, and it's super awesome. If Martin told you he would answer one plot question you had about A Song of Ice and Fire, what would your question be? Dude, I have thought about that. And I've mostly thought about it in terms of like, what kind of cagey question could I ask Martin that he'd actually answer that might give me a clue about something? But he's too smart. I I don't think there's any question I could ask him. I might ask him something like, uh, can you talk a little bit about the influence of classical nature mythology on a song of ice and fire or something like that and just sort of see what he has to say. I mean, I, th- I mean, the big question to ask him would be like, Hey, am I right? Did all this stuff happen? But he's never going to answer that unless he answers it in the books. So I don't know. I don't really think too much about trying to ask him any questions. It's probably never going to happen. I know that like, for example, George Martin has commented on Beefish's blog and said, you know, Hey, wars of ice and fire. That's great analysis. And I like that. But, um, I don't think he could even say that about my blog if he became aware of it, because if he even said he liked my blog, that'd be tantamount to confirming, uh, you know, too many of my theories. And that's not something he would ever do. So I'll just have to wait and see if he confirms it in the books. Would I recommend a simultaneous parallel reading of Feast and Dance for a Newcomer? Um... I don't think it matters that much, really. You can read Feast and then Dance, or you can do the combined reading order. I think it's uh, pretty good either way, and I don't think it's going to screw you up if you want to do the combined reading order. You don't have to. I'd probably recommend reading the books as they were written and then doing Feast Dance, but it's not a not a big deal. Let's see. <clears throat> St. Rixian says, he reads your blog and nods sagely. Yes, we can all hope. Let's see here. Let me scroll back up a little bit and see if I missed any. Do I think Kyburn is working for Duran? Uh, I, Doran Martell. I had not heard that idea. I don't think so. Uh, let's see. They haven't been in contact. I mean, they would have had to have been in contact years and years ago. I don't really see how that could happen. I do wonder what Kyburn's agenda is um, or what role he's going to play in the future and Robert Strong and all that. What do I think about the runes basically being a written language? The Night's King's name was removed from the records. Maesters glean lots of info from runes. Yeah, it's, it's a little confusing when they say his name was erased from the records because we're told that the write, you know, written records only happened once the Andals got here, which was thousands of years after the Long Night and the Night's King. 
So I think it's probably just poetic language. Um, like his name was just not remembered. You know, it was wiped out from everyone's memory. Um, although I, I mean, runes definitely can record certain types of knowledge. Different rune systems have different meanings and runes can also basically mean pictographs like a hieroglyph or something. And those can contain a lot of information. They can contain records of monarchies and things like that. So it's, uh, it's hard to say how, how technical the runes are of the first men and what kind of information they record. That's a good question though. I do wonder about that sometimes. Do you think the high towers are big players behind the maesters and the faith? Absolutely. The high towers are big, big players behind a lot of things. And um, I think uh, I think we're going to find out. High towers are one thing we're going to get an answer to, probably in the next book. Lord Layton's up there consulting with the Mad Maid in his book of spells, and maybe he'll raise an army from the deeps. I mean, you don't write a line like that without telling us what's going on. And the high towers also, if if the whole Great Empire of the Dawn theory is important, and uh, the Fewstone Fortress on Battle Isle is a big clue about Azor High coming to Westeros then we, we're going to need to get more info about that. And we've got a bunch of people at Old Town and a bunch of action that's about to take place at Old Town, so I think we're going to find out a lot more about the High Towers in the next book. And I noticed the High Towers are brought up a lot in the uh, Princess and the Queen and this, uh, all this Targaryen history we're being given. So I definitely feel like Martin is consistently showing us, like, these High Towers, they're always involved when stuff is going down. So, yeah. Was Marwyn part of Danny's miscarriage? No, I don't think so. No. Um, let's see. Hightowers. What significance do you think the caves and tunnels, several important locations have underneath of them, have to the story? Well, I recommend, first of all, uh, reading Wiz the Smith's theory on westeros.org called The Caves Are Timeless. Hollow Hills, Magic Castles, and Green Seers. Wiz the Smith is one of my good buddies, and his theory is really great. So let me find the pop-out chat. There it is. And there's your link. All right. Uh, so what importance do they have? Well, um, they're important as, as in terms of symbolism. They're Chthonic underworld realms. Um, and we're obviously this is tied to I mean, we see Blood Raven in a cave. We see uh, Barrack doing a Blood Raven impression inside a Weirwood cave. So pretty clearly these caves are important. It could be uh, really basic, like during the long night, that's one of the places people hid from the cold and the others. But mostly I think it's, it's symbolizing the, uh, like the afterlife or the undead realm when you go underground. So anytime you see scenes underground... We're getting clues about stuff that people did after they died or inside the Weirwood Net or things like that. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead and call it. It's been about two hours, and thanks, everyone, for coming out. We've had about 100 people the whole time steady, which is great. It's a nice nice little crowd for someone such as myself, uh, especially in the off-season of, uh, you know, no uh, TV shows. So... Let me talk a little bit about what's coming up next. Um, we're going to be doing, next one is called Visenya Draconis, and that's essentially going to be um, the, moon, the Sun King with two moon wives as seen through Aegon the Conqueror, Rhaenys, and Visenya. 
And after that, episode four will be RLJ, uh, Recipe for Ice Dragons. That's going to be a similar episode, but this time it's going to be Leanna and Elia and Rhaegar. And once we get through those two, we will know a lot more about the others and why cold burns and what connection Azor High has to the others and how Night's King and Azor High and Last Hero Myths sort of meet up. And we're also going to be breaking down uh, a couple of really awesome dragon-on-dragon battles from uh, the Dance of the Dragons Targaryen Civil War. So there's lots of stuff to look forward to. And uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening and downloading. These two episodes came out really well. I think most people like, uh, and what, by that I mean that most people like the shorter format. So um, I'm going to continue to probably try to keep everything under two hours so that it's a little easier to break down. And uh, I continue to look forward to hearing your thoughts on what is what are the ramifications of Dawn being ice, because I think we've only begun to really peel back the meaning of this. Um, I mean, it's pretty strong symbolism. I mean, out of all the lines of symbolism that I've found, the ash tree stuff is really strong. Obviously, the dragon meteor stuff is all over the place. But the Kingsguard Others connection is like, I mean, it's pretty heavy, right? <laughs> I mean, every Kingsguard description we get, white shadows, moon pale armor, ghostly armor, armor as hard as ice, snow white cloaks. It's pretty intense. So, I mean, there's, I'm thinking there's probably going to be more than one implication of that. So love to hear your ideas about that. Uh, someone's asking me if I'm going to have a guest on next time. So I would love to have a guest on. Uh, however, the only thing is that I would need to have a guest that's completely caught up with all of my stuff. And, you know, most of the other podcasters that I go on their shows are they're making their own stuff. And when you make your own podcast, it's very hard to be up on everybody else's videos. So I probably will look for an opportunity to do that. Um, but for now, is when I'm doing these Q&As, just basically answering questions based on my essays, I kind of have to give most of these answers. So I've, I've been thinking about maybe having somebody else just to sort of give their random thoughts on some of these various questions. Um, but I don't have any firm plans for that right now. And I will, I will think about it. Yeah, no, I, I see some good suggestions here in, in the chat. Um, and like I said, um, I might try to work it out. But, you know, if, uh, if somebody else isn't really caught up on all my essays, then it's kind of hard to answer questions about them. Uh, because, you know, I've just got so much sort of ideas that are built on, you know, one after another sequentially. So in any case, um, I do appreciate everyone coming out and... I will remind you once again on Tuesday, 7 o'clock Eastern, I think, double-check that, the History of Westeros live stream will be me and Aziz and Ashea and Brendan Beefish and maybe other people. And we'll be talking about the new book, Sons of the Dragon, and that's going to be lots of fun. I have a feeling that's going to go like three hours long. We've got lots of things to say. And, uh, yeah, there you go. So thanks, everybody. And now I will look for the off button which I found pretty quickly last time. Let's see here. Where's the off button? How do I stop streaming?
This happened last time, too. <laughs> You're stuck with me. Actually, you can leave anytime you want. But... Gotta write this down. It was cold butchery. The pale blades sliced through ringmail as if it were silk. <laughs> 